Well, good morning to you. It is a delight to me to be able to be a guest preacher here at Providence today. And um, you all have no shortage of good preachers here in your midst. And so they do not need for me to be here doing this for you this morning. But David was very gracious to invite me to come and preach. And I'm glad to get to do that. As a guest preacher, of course, I'm using a borrowed microphone. And it's got Dave Cleland's name on it. And he told me that if I say anything wrong, he's not going to take responsibility. But I might try to push it his way anyway. I do, as David said, and as the, as the bulletin says in the back, work for RUF again. I get to be an area coordinator. And I say get to because RUF is a ministry that means a whole lot to me. It does to David as well. David and I were campus ministers at the same time, I think the exact same years, right? 1999 to 2006, David was here at SMU. I was in Georgia at Mercer. So David and Stephanie and Mary and I got to be in, camp, in uh, campus minister staff training together a couple of times a year for those seven years. And, and those are good years to us, formative years for us. And RUF is meaningful to us both in regard to our kids now. I know Cole is involved with RUF at Texas A&M, which is one campus I get to travel to. Our kids are involved in, in uh, RUF on their own campuses in other states. In fact, one of my sons goes to church now with my former campus minister in Athens, Georgia. Uh, my former campus minister is retired from that now, but my son and my former campus minister worship together in the same church, and that to me is a delight. Today is Palm Sunday, and so I want to look with you at, at Luke 19. This is, of course, the, the traditional Palm Sunday event. This is Jesus' royal entrance into Jerusalem. So if you look with me in your bulletin and follow along as I read. And when he, that is Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You'll remember, of course, last September, some six months or so ago now, Elizabeth, the Queen of England, died at, at age 96. She was much beloved as a long-reigning monarch of 70 years there in the United Kingdom, beloved for her humility and for her humor. And after her death and their remembrances, so many stories were told. You heard some of them, I'm sure. My favorite story that I heard about the Queen was told by Richard Griffin, who was a former royal protection officer for the Queen. That is basically, I guess that's a British term for bodyguard. And Mr. Griffin told the story that the Queen liked to go up to a holiday home, a royal holiday home in Scotland, and she enjoyed going there once or twice a year, just as a, a personal retreat for a weekend. And one of her habits there while on holiday was to go out on a picnic in the countryside along with her royal protection officer. Normally it was just the two of them. They would have a picnic and maybe go for a short walk. And so on this particular occasion they did this. And Mr. Griffin and the Queen had a nice picnic together. And then they began their short hike, their short walk on the trails. And most times they wouldn't see anybody in this countryside. But on this occasion, two Americans appeared on their own walking holiday and approached these two older British folks to be friendly. They evidently did not recognize who it was. And they began to make conversation, telling the queen and her bodyguard all about their own travels and where they'd been and where they were going and making small talk with them. And eventually one of them said to the queen, so where do you live? <laughs> and she replied, well, I, I live in London, but I have a holiday home just the other side of the hill. And the man said, well, how long have you been coming here? to your holiday home. And she said, well, most of my life, I mean, since I was a little girl, probably 80 years or so I've been coming here. And so this man began to clue in a little bit. And he said, well, if you've been coming here for that long, then maybe you've met the queen. <laughs> and she didn't hesitate. She said, no, I haven't. But he has. <laughs> Dick here. Dick here meets with her regularly. And so these Americans took great interest in Dick, of course, and, <laughs> and, and they began to ask him questions. So what is the queen like? And, and, and he said, well, and he, he's standing here with the queen. He, he said, well, she's, she can be rather cantankerous at times, <laughs> but she has a lovely sense of humor. And before he knew it, these two Americans had come alongside him and they had given their cell phone to the queen and said, would you take a picture of us with this man? <laughs> And she did. And then Mr. Griffin insisted that they take a picture with her as well. And he took a picture and gave the phone back. And they walked off on their way. Having no idea 
that they had just met one of the most famous monarchs to ever walk the earth, and they did not recognize her. This is the story of Palm Sunday. Truly. The monarch of all monarchs made his royal entrance, his triumphal entry, as we sometimes call it, and those who needed to recognize it did not. His entrance really was not especially triumphal, actually, in the eyes of the world. But it is a powerful proclamation of God's redemptive plan for the world and of the man on whose shoulders that plan lay. So Jesus, at this point in, God, in Luke's gospel, has been traveling a lot over the past 10 chapters. If you were to look back in Luke, you'd see for 10 chapters or so, he's been traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. Luke elongates that narrative in order to give you the picture of Jesus teaching and parables and healing people and in so many ways demonstrating himself to be the Messiah, fully God and fully man. And here in this passage, he shows both of those things in subtle ways. Having just told a kingdom parable, Luke explains that he, Jesus, went on ahead going up to the kingdom city, Jerusalem. And he arrived at Bethphage and Bethany, which were basically small villages, kind of bedroom communities outside of to the east of Jerusalem. And there Jesus would lodge during the week at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, his friends, because Jesus, the man, relied upon his friends. And yet Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is about to demonstrate by his royal entrance that the Savior of the world had arrived for his final redemptive act after three years of ministry. And just like the crowd's mixed reaction that you read here all around him, the question for us is this. Is Jesus the promised king through whom God will restore all of creation? Or is he just a religious farce, posing with empty platitudes in a pitiful final week of life? His royal entrance here proposes to answer that dilemma for us. And it does so beginning with his point of entry. Now, by that I don't mean the point of entry he took into Jerusalem itself, but rather the fact that his point of entry is Jerusalem. The Son of God, the eternal creator of the universe, became a man and he entered into his world in Jerusalem. Now he could have entered into Athens and entered into where the, the Greeks were pontificating on the greatest philosophies of the day. We might assume that. Or he could have entered into Rome the military power of the day, which is something that many of us would just assume this is where a king would go. But no, his point of entry is Jerusalem. It's his intentional destination. In fact, Luke tells us back in chapter 9, again 10 chapters ago, that Jesus at that point resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. Now he's not, of course, the only one who's going to Jerusalem on this, on this occasion. The the crowds of Israel are going to Jerusalem. They're traveling there for the Passover celebration, the Passover week, and the population of Jerusalem in this particular week would swell 
from tens of thousands of people to hundreds of thousands of people. As, as all the Israelites converged upon Jerusalem, it was very much the center of life in Israel. In fact, still today, it is the center of the world's major religions, isn't it? Judaism, Islam, and of course Christianity. All three claim Jerusalem as their holy city, or at least one of their holy cities, Islam does. And it's the center of the universe in God's eyes for various reasons. A few to think about. For one, for, for geographical reasons, it's the center of the universe in God's eyes. There are some people who, who try to figure out ways to make this work to consider that, that perhaps the Garden of Eden that we read about in the book of Genesis was located in the same geographical spot as Jerusalem is. Now, I think there's no way to know that. In part because the flood happened between then and now, and the geography was a little different, perhaps before. There's no way to really know that. But we do know, with maybe more certainty, that Mount Moriah, that destination of Abraham and Isaac, when God called Abraham to give him his son Isaac, and he did so on Mount Moriah, that that's the place where Jerusalem is built and where the temple of Solomon would be built. So for geographical reasons, it's very central, but also for theological reasons, of course, too. You know that place names in the Old Testament especially very often identify people. And so Scripture will refer to, to the people of God as Jacob or as Judah or as Benjamin. Sometimes we're referred to, the people of God are referred to as Zion or as Jerusalem. They are the people of God. And it is, Jerusalem, at once the place of the infidelity and the disobedience and the unfaithfulness of God's people. And at the same time, the place of God's presence and his protection and his glory. For theological reasons, it's very essential. But also even for eschatological reasons, for future reasons, Jerusalem is central. If you were to go back in your Old Testament and look in Zechariah chapter 14, we, we read some from Zechariah earlier in the liturgy. If you were to look at Zechariah 14, you'd read this fascinating chapter where the prophet foresees a future scene of the nations being arrayed against Jerusalem. And God himself planting his feet on the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem in order to rescue his people. Now, today, the Mount of Olives on its west side facing Jerusalem is covered with tombs, limestone tombs. I'll tell you why in just a moment. It's a fascinating thing to see. Mary and I got to go to travel in the Holy Land five or six years ago and stand in this place and see this. It's a fascinating picture to see. It's covered in, in tombs because people are anticipating this day of Zechariah 14 when God will come and stand upon the Mount of Olives. In fact, the, from the Mount of Olives, if you're looking west at Jerusalem, you're seeing the, the Temple Mount and the great walls that surround that Temple Mount. The wall has gates in it for entrance. And the eastern gate has been filled in with stone. Because back in the 1500s, 
a sultan of the Ottoman Empire became aware of Zechariah 14's prophecy that God was going to come from that direction to save his people, and this sultan did not want God to come in. So he filled the gate with stone. It remains there today. And so these tombs are on the side of the mount because Zechariah tells us that God is going to come with his holy ones to rescue his people. And the Jews want to be buried in that place so that they can be one of those holy ones to come with God when he rescues his people. Jerusalem is, is central, but even more because of Revelation 21. You know, the, the new heavens and the new earth, which you heard about this morning, perhaps. In Sunday school, we talked about it a bit. You read about John's vision of the enormous golden city coming down out of heaven from God. It is... The, the new Jerusalem, the, the new heavens and the new earth, it is the place of future residence of God's people. Not the old Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of all of creation. Therefore, it is Jesus' point of entry. And as that point of entry, it indi indicates something about this king, and that is this, that he has come with his eyes on all of creation, not just one city. He came to claim this whole world as his kingdom, and that means that Christians, as servants of that king, have callings to claim this world with God's redemptive purposes and grace for the glory of the king who claims it. Again, Zechariah 14, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name, the only name. Now, of course, what does the world tell you today? Oh, there's not just one Lord, and they're not going to use that term, but that's what they mean. There's not just one Lord. There are lots of Lords out there. There's, there's not just one name. There are many names out there. And what they mean, of course, what the world means is there's not, there's not just one truth, which means there is no truth, right? Truth is relative to your cultural location. It depends on your experience and your preferences and how you see things. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. That is, of course, what the world says. But that's not what Jesus declares, the monarch of all monarchs came to enter into this place because he is no religious farce posing with empty platitudes. He's the promised king coming to restore all of creation. And he shows it by his point of entry, but he also shows it by his way of entering. His way of entering. And again, I don't mean the path that he took, but rather the mode by which he came. He came in complete control. So this whole scene about procuring a donkey, the, the cult, the foal of a donkey, is always a fascinating scene to consider, which churches always do on Palm Sunday, fittingly. And, and it's interesting to, to think about. I mean, how did Jesus know that this cult would be there? And how did he know that the owner of the cult would see them roping it up and ask them about it? And he would, they would give the question. You know, it's a fascinating thing to, to recognize and think about how Jesus is in complete control. But the fact is, the bigger picture, he is directing the sequence of events that leads to his death. That's what he's doing here. He's coming in complete control. But it's not just that he rides a colt 
It's what it communicates about him that we have to pay attention to. So imagine that you're at your spring picnic in the neighborhood, maybe, and a, neighbor, a neighborhood man pulls up to the curb in a minivan, and the door slides open on the side, and you can see and get a glimpse inside that minivan. And you can see in there, there are food stains on the seats and crumbs on the floor. And there are fingerprints on the windows and child seats in the back. And you know something now about this driver. He's a family man. He's a dad. That's pretty clear. And then another car pulls up. It's a Jeep. Pulls up on the curb behind him and parks. And it's covered in bumper stickers. Hook 'em horns. And keep Austin weird. And it's full of duffel bags. And you know, before the driver gets out, this is a college student who's come home for Easter weekend to see their family. And then another car pulls up. It's a gray van with a blue swoosh on the side. It says Amazon Prime on the side. And you know who this driver is. They're not there for the picnic. They're to, they're to deliver something to the picnic. The mode of transportation tells you something about the one who is taking it. And in the same way, the way that Jesus enters in here, the mode in which he does, tells you something about him. What does the cult show about Jesus? For one, it shows you that he's conscientious of Old Testament prophecy about him. We read earlier from Zechariah 9, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, so clearly he's conscientious about what had been written about him in ages past. But there are a couple of things also to notice here. This mode of transportation tells you that he's coming with peace. He's coming with peace. Because a young donkey is, by nature, an animal of peace. It can't be anything else. That's all it's capable of being, maybe a little bit of trouble at times, but it's not going to cause havoc. It's just a peaceable child of an animal. It comes with peace. And so, again, this entry is really not triumphal in the eyes of the world, at least, but it's a peaceful entry. Again, Zechariah, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he, my Redeemer, shall speak peace to the nations. He came to bring peace. He came to, to end the war between people and nations, to end the wars between cultures, to end the wars between men and God, to end the wars between you and yourself. He came to bring peace. But he also came without fear. And this is a really important one to notice. So he's riding an unridden colt, a foal that has yet had no one to sit upon its back. And you might wonder, why, why that? Why so specific for that? Well, it's because nobody in ancient days could ride upon the king's animal but the king himself. This is actually a proclamation of Jesus' royalty and of his 
divinity. There's something very bold and very confident about the fact that he has declared to his disciples, the cult upon which I will enter has never been ridden by anyone before. What's he saying? He's saying, I am a king. And then there are the cloaks upon the road that, that his disciples lay, and he rides a, a, across the, the cloaks and the palm branches, and the multitude is calling out with their loud voices, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus receives it because this crowd is recognizing the king, but the Pharisees don't, and they rebuke the disciples. They rebuke Jesus for their words and for his not rebuking them. And what does Jesus say to them? If they didn't recognize the king, then the stones would cry out recognizing the king because the very nature of creation itself is going to recognize its maker. And so with all of this recognition, Jesus has no fear. But there's still something more here about that. A military leader who is entering into a city with the anticipation of overtaking that city is going to come expecting trouble. He's going to come expecting threats and resistance. He's going to come expecting harm to be thrown at him from all sides. And so, how would he come? He'd come prepared. He would come not riding on a colt. He'd become riding on a, on a war horse, on a steed. He'd come with a sword in hand and shields and armor on his shoulders. He would come with a contingent of war soldiers at his side because he would be ready for trouble. But how does Jesus come? With no gear at all. Because he has no fear. He has no fear at all. Because there's nothing that can threaten him. Now, of course, you will say, well... He'd be dead three days later, and you'd be right about that. He also would rise again from the tomb. He'd be dead a few days later, yes, but he has no fear. Why? Because he knows that his days and his very life are in the hands of God the Father. And so it is for you and me. Now there's a, a Bible verse that Christians overuse, we make two mistakes with this verse, we overuse it, and then because of that, we don't use it. And that is, God works all things for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. You know where to find that verse, I expect, in Romans chapter 8. It's a verse that we use a lot, sometimes maybe too quickly, but because we do that, we then don't use it at all. And we forget the power of what's at work in that. God works all things for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And that good is, of course, not that you're going to reach some state of untroubled nirvana in your life and you'll never be troubled by anything at all. That is not the good that God promises. But rather it is that you will be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, as has been mentioned this morning and prayed for Already, the events that unfolded in Nashville six days ago were horrific. School shootings happen in this country with some frequency, but they always feel so far away until they're not. And then we begin to feel the reasons to fear because this world is filled with reasons to fear. 
And you have plenty of those reasons yourself. Real things. Whatever it is that you're facing. Maybe job uncertainty or family trauma or relational friction or growing old. Or living in a culture that increasingly hates the ways of God. All of those things are very real reasons to feel fear. But because of the way that your king has entered the scene, you have no reason to fear because your life is in the hands of God. Jesus is no religious farce posing with empty platitudes here. He is the promised king who's coming to bring peace, to relieve fear. And he shows that by way of his point of entry. And he shows that by his way of entering. But he also shows it by his reasons for entering. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, I, I don't think that these were sentimental hallmark token tears. I expect that riding on that colt towards the city, that these were sobbing tears of sadness. Because he's recognizing that this is a grievous moment. That the people who need him as king don't even know who he is. They've taken some selfies along the way. They've posted it for their friends to see. And they don't even know who he was. And he's weeping with sadness. One of his reasons for entering is to show compassion for his people. Verse 42 and following, Would that you, even you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. You did not know the time of your visitation. And he he foreshadows the coming destruction of Jerusalem here because judgment is coming. They will have no king to protect them because they did not recognize the time of their visitation, the time of God's inspection, the time of God's oversight among them. They missed it. And Jesus grieves with compassion for those who miss his coming. But why did Jerusalem miss it? Why did they not see it? Because they wanted a worldly king. They wanted a worldly warrior, as the Israelites always had wanted. And still they wanted a worldly warrior to come and defeat the Romans. That's what they thought they were opposed against. They just wanted somebody to come and deal with the Romans. But if they would have received Jesus, their king, as he was and as he came, they would have found the peace of redemption, the peace of gospel grace that God is still working in this world, but they would not receive him. And so a generation later, in A.D. 70, the Roman general Titus besieged Jerusalem for three years. And after three years, broke into the city and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews were murdered. They will not leave one stone upon another, Jesus said. Indeed, it was so. Jesus entered in order to show compassion for his people. And still the call is to us. Do you recognize the time of your visitation? Do you know the one who has come to bring you peace and to show you compassion and to, to, to provide for you the redeeming grace of 
God. Now while Jesus is peaceful and patient, is the time to receive him as he is. Don't miss the chance while this king shows compassion, because there's another reason for his coming, and that is to show passion for God's purity. Verses 45 and following, Jesus entered into the temple and showed his anger at the the commercialism that had entered into the space of worship, overturning the tables and calling them out for their commercialism. The people of Jerusalem had their routine. Jews would travel into Jerusalem for Passover and they'd have to have the proper supplies to go to the temple for the the observances, and they would buy certain things, but that commercialism had moved into the temple courts itself, and of course it infuriated Jesus, because Israel had become quite comfortable in its religious cruise control, which would be some, something of a warning for us. We, we easily get onto religious cruise control, don't we? Two decades before this moment, Jesus, as a boy, had entered into the temple and was asking questions of the religious leaders. And now, 20-some years later, the man, Jesus, returns, but he's asking different questions now. He's asking questions like, have you forgotten the purity of God's holiness? Have you forgotten that God has provided a place for you to gather together before him in humility with one another and in loving communication with him in prayer, have you forgotten that God is gracious to you? Jesus, the coming king, is a comfort to us. He brings peace and he relieves fear, to be sure, but he's also a challenge to us. He he leads us to places that we did not expect to go. He presents us with difficulties that we do not want. He brings things into our lives that we do not feel prepared to face because he has royally entered this world to show compassion and to demonstrate God's pure holiness so that you might turn to him and be redeemed. Do you recognize the promised king who has come? As those two American hikers walked away that day in England, in Scotland, Queen Elizabeth turned to Richard Griffin and she said, I would love to be a fly on the wall. When they show those pictures to their friends back home, surely someone among their friends will be able to tell them who I am. Do you recognize the promised king who has come? He is the one through whom God is making all of creation to be his kingdom. He has shown it by his royal entrance. And so may you follow him in faith as he goes. In the name of Jesus, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak through it by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would be at work to do that even now. Would you draw us to yourself and cause us to see that you have loved us in Christ, that you have called us to believe him, to recognize him as our king, and to follow him in faith. And would you do that for your own glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.